Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Freedom and Wealth Podcast. This is your host, Brian Nicolason. Today is Friday, December 2nd, 2022. Uh, We have finished up the holiday, Thanksgiving holiday. I hope everybody had a good one. Um, And so, you know, we're we're really getting ready for the end of the year here and, and hope everybody's getting ready for this this nice holiday season, spend some time with family and friends. Uh, looking at the markets as we head into the holidays, it's actually a really, it's a seasonally strong period, December. Technically, really, later half of December is seasonally strong. And so um, ahead of that, not, not for that reason at all, but ahead of that, we did make a tactical trade in our all-weather portfolio. So many clients, um, if you're a client out there, you have seen uh, some of our information that we've been putting out. If you're not a client, we have something called our all-weather portfolio. This is a risk-managed portfolio of uh, securities that we manage for clients. And it's risk-managed both fundamentally and technically. So we have uh, fundamental drivers that help us make allocations, equity allocations, and then we use multiple layers of technical analysis to avoid big losses in the portfolio. We're not afraid to move positions to cash when the markets are trending downward. And so, you know, we did that actually in the early part of the year. The majority of our portfolios were greater than 80% cash uh, all, all year since January. And the result of that is that most of our clients were only down maybe, you know, 5 to 7% on average year to date today versus uh, you know the overall port the overall market which might be down 18 to 30 percent depending on what part of the market you were invested in so uh, you know we've done a great job uh, mitigating risk using again some technical analysis and so w- what I mean by we made a tactical trade yesterday um, there's some changes uh, basically some tide changes going on in the stock market that uh, cause us fundamentally fundamentally to believe that there might be still a, a decent uh, rally left through the end of the year and even into the early part of next year. And um, from a technical perspective, we crossed uh, you know one of the most significant technical barriers, which is the 200-day moving average. Uh, we moved above that. And so that was our impetus to uh, increase our equity allocation going into the end of the year. Um, you know, if we had basically failed this rally at the 200-day moving average, it would have just confirmed our thesis that you know we're in the bear market, and that the, even this rally wasn't strong enough to break through that barrier. But you know, since it was, it consolidated around the 200-day moving average. The Dow Jones is already trading above the 200-day moving average, and the S&P followed that this week. And really, it's an indication of a few different things, um, but. You know, our general consensus of what's going on uh, that's driving equity markets up is that there's been an easing of CPI. You know, we had a light report for October. Uh, We do expect a fairly light report for November. Um, And by light, you know, it's still 7.7% inflation. So it's still high inflation. Um, You know, again, if if you use the real number, it's still 16% inflation or 15%. Uh, but, it, you know, I guess that's better than 19% or whatever we peaked at in the early part of the year. So uh, we're seeing CPI come down or at least inflation uh, coming down a bit. Um, we're seeing decent uh, earnings. You know, corporations' earnings are holding up even better than we had expected uh, through third quarter. We expect even through fourth quarter that 
earnings remain fairly resilient. I'm going to talk a little bit about that today. And But what we've definitely seen is a softening of the Fed and their, their uh, hawkish rhetoric. You know, the Fed has been extremely hawkish this year. There's been a few comments that spurred rallies both in March as well as in June. And those were quickly talked down by, uh, by the Fed. But right now what they're doing is they're really easing up on the hawkish rhetoric. They're, they're easing up on the rate increases at 75 basis points. Uh, Jerome Powell made his last speech on Wednesday uh, before they go into the blackout period where they don't talk ahead of the Fed, the Fed meeting um, in mid-December. So we got about two weeks till that. But, you know, ahead of that, he made a speech on Wednesday where he told everybody that it was pretty much a given that it was going to be 50 basis point increase and then uh, insinuated that there's going to be very little rate hikes after that, uh, which makes sense. You know, if the terminal rates around 5%, maybe that's one more, you know, 1% higher. If we're getting 50 in December, maybe that's two more 25s. So basically, we're almost at the terminal rate as far as uh, a rising interest rate environment. So, you know, all year, it's been a function of rising interest rates has caused lowering in stock prices. And so now we're coming to the end of that. So if you combine all those three factors, right, you combine a Fed that's nowhere near as hawkish as they were just two months ago, uh, you have a CPI that's uh, cooling off a bit, and you have re fairly resilient earnings, it's reignited two conversations in the stock market, one of a soft landing and two of transitory inflation. Um, you know, the whole idea that inflation was transitory went out the window. You know, it was uh, basically everybody realized that, that, that they were wrong. Everybody that said inflation was transitory was wrong. But that conversation's right back where we started. Now, again, I do not agree with any of this. Inflation is not transitory. Inflation is here. It is entrenched. It is going to be here probably through the next decade. And if they don't fix anything, it's going to be here forever. Um, so inflation is definitely not transitory, but the market is believing it. Right? The market is reigniting the transitory inflation conversation. Um, and they're reigniting the soft landing conversation. They're saying, hey, corporate earnings are holding up better than expected. We've gone through the rate hikes already. So you know what? Maybe we can come out of this thing unscathed. And you know all that, along with a Fed that is encouraging both of those conversations, has resulted in a, in a fairly significant rally that's picked up breath across all, all asset classes. And so, you know, yields are down, stock prices are up, we broke through the 200 day moving average, we're heading into the strongest part of the year in December. And this could set us up for, you know, a four, five, 10% gain through the end of the year into into first quarter. And so we, we increased our equity exposure. Uh, now that all that is really consolidated as a, a fairly significant trend. Uh, now, again, we're definitely not 100% invested in equities. You know, we added 25% equity allocation from where we were. And uh, we're going to see how this, this goes. Um, we've got plenty of risk controls in place for my clients out there. They know about this. You know, that if if we see the markets trend the wrong direction, if it if it actually does fail at the 200 and it head fakes us above that level, you know, then, then we'll just uh, not hesitate to sell assets extremely quickly because we're not going to ride this thing down. Our baseline is still exactly what we've been talking about. Our baseline is the S&P 500 is going to retest the June and October lows of 3,600. Our baseline price for the S&P 500 is between 3,200 and 3,300. We think that'll be the final bottom. Um, and so, you know, that's basically another 
20% down from here. So in no way are we setting ourselves up to buy into an equity market to get hit by a 20% downturn. Um, but we feel that there might be some profits to be made uh, through the end of the year before we, we start to retest those lows. So with all that being said, again, our baseline is significant correction in the equity markets. And really our baseline is double hump inflation, double dip recession. So what do I mean by that? Well, we had this spike in inflation earlier in the year. I think we peaked out eight point something inflation. Um, I'm not sure the exact month. I, I could have looked it up, but I think it was June. I think it was June was the peak inflation. And, you know, we've been trailing down ever since, primarily driven by lower energy prices. Some of the supply chains have uh, fixed themselves a little bit. Uh, but energy really is the main driver of a decrease in inflation because services and, and food costs are still rising um, and picking up speed, right? The Fed has done no, made no progress on that. But again, we are seeing that headline number come down a little bit the last few months. We think we'll probably continue to see that maybe the next month or two. So we're going to have this lull in inflation that's likely to explode as we get further into the winter, uh, as the Strategic Petroleum Reserve releases stop, as the uh, sanctions and the price cap go into place on Russian oil. Uh, you know, both of those things, again, Russian oil has not even decreased, right? I mean, we're there's as much Russian oil on the market today as there was previous to the war. All right. So nobody's doing anything about it. They're letting the Russian oil flow because they want to keep prices down. You know, the, the federal government's dumping money, uh, oil out of strategic petroleum reserve. And China is all but shut down, right, as far as production. So when those three things reverse, uh, you could see energy prices skyrocket to numbers that you've never seen before. And we do anticipate that happening. Again, sanctions are going to go into, apply, into place as well as the price cap on Russian oil. Now, those are two separate things, but both of them have upward, um, have a, a pressure on oil, oil um, amounts in the global market, um, oil capacity rather. So as we bring oil production down into the global market, that's going to be a huge price increase. And we're going to have increased demand when China comes back online. And based on some of the, you know, uh, some of the different things going on in China, um, not riots, uh, forget the word, it's Friday, it's been a long week. Uh, but just some of the protests, rather, that's the word I was looking for. Um, some of the protests in China, you know, I think at some point the, the Chinese are going to have to open up a little bit. When they do, again, that's more demand for oil. So as you have rising demand and lowering supply from a, uh, no longer dumping a million barrels a day from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, as well as the, the sanctions and the price caps going on to Russian oil, uh, we could see oil spike from where it is today. What is it? $79 a barrel, whatever it is. It's in the high 70s. Um, to 110, 120, 150, $200 a barrel. I mean, these are not out of the question. And if that happens mid midwinter, um, you'll see inflation numbers with nine handles, 10 handles, 11 handles, right? I mean, so, so the inflation that's ahead of us is probably significantly higher than the inflation that's behind us. But right now, we're in a lull. And right now, the whole market wants to believe that that was the end, that we saw peak inflation. They also want to believe that we saw peak Fed hawkishness. And as of now, we have, right? I mean, the Fed is backing off the inflation fight. And, um, you know, they want everybody to believe 
that inflation is over, that it is transitory. After all, we just you guys didn't give us enough enough time for transitory to be true, right? That's what they want us to believe. So they think that inflation has has peaked and it'll never go back to where it was, and that the Fed is done with their rate hikes. And and the Fed is the one pushing both of these conversations. And the third thing that they're pushing is that hey, the consumer's still strong, the consumer's still spending. So so that's really what's put this fuel behind this rally. And I really think that this equity rally could probably continue, you know, through the end of the year into the point where eventually inflation gets out of control and corporate earnings start to fall off and the Fed is forced back to a hawkish environment. And again, we could see that at the early part of next year. So let's talk about all those things again. We talked about the double hump inflation. Um, We think that's definitely possible. And then, you know, we could talk a little bit about the double dip recession. I mean, we saw, you know, stock markets, stock market come down and hit a low in June It hit another low in October. And then what we're saying is our baseline is it's going to hit another low next year. All three of those decreases will probably be ahead of the true economic recession. But from a stock market recession, you know, we've seen some of it, but we're going to see another one of it, uh, another big decrease. And that's because of corporate earnings. Um, personal savings, right? The amount of money that Americans have in the, in savings accounts uh, and money markets, et cetera. They had $4.8 trillion at the top of the pandemic, right? So when they were sending out stimulus checks and uh, nobody was going anywhere, they weren't buying gasoline, they weren't going on vacation, uh, the Americans had a total of $4.8 trillion. That Since that point, and I think that was mid-2020, late-2020, the amount of savings that Americans have have plummeted 89% down to a $520 billion savings level, which is the lowest amount of savings Americans have had since the depths of the 2008 financial crisis. So now today, we have the lowest savings since 08. At the same time, credit card balances jumped 15% in the third quarter. So not only are we depleting our savings, we've depleted 89% of our savings. We've also ran credit cards up to the highest level it was the largest year-over-year increase in credit card balances in 20 years, right, since the dot-com. So Americans are running out of savings. They're swiping plastic to try and get by. This is what's going on. At the same time, we had a record Black Friday and Cyber Monday, right? Buy now, pay later. Like, you know, every time you see that, Affirm is the big company it's famous for. It. But there's a bunch of companies that offer buy now, pay later services, which is basically ridiculous. If you're buying anything on a buy now, pay later, you're in a tough spot, right? I mean, there's no real reason to do a buy now, pay later, except for the fact that you don't have any money. Buy now, pay later was up 88% week over week from the week, including Black Friday and Cyber Monday to uh, the week prior. So this, a huge surge in buy now, pay later. And again, it was the largest shopping day in American history. And so what this is really telling us is that um, the American family is going to swipe credit cards and spend like nothing is wrong until the credit card gets declined. That is the American way. It is to just keep spending as if there's no problem. As long as there's room on the credit card, spend it. So what do the Americans do? They spent down all of their savings, all but 11%. They spent down 89% of their savings. Then they racked up credit cards, probably ran out of credit card space, and started buying on buy now, pay later, right? And yet, all this is happening in the midst of breaking shopping records. I mean, this is just the epitome of everything that's wrong 
with Americans, right? Is they're spending all this money and they don't have the money. However, this is what's keeping corporate earnings good, right? I mean, you look at Pepsi. Pepsi released in their second, yeah, no, their third quarter results. Um, they said, hey, we've raised prices 17% this year. And the consumers largely absorbed all those price increases. And Pepsi gets rewarded for that report. Well, look, here's the problem. You have a consumer that's now spending 17% more on the staples. That's what Pepsi sells. They sell drinks. They sell pretzels. They sell snacks. These are the things that Americans live on, right? And so those prices are up 17%, and the Americans absorbed it. Now, look, most Americans live paycheck to paycheck. So if you're living paycheck to paycheck, and the cost of living went up 17%, right? I don't use the CPI number of 8% because it's not real. It's government manipulated, right? The fact is single family homes are up 40% year over year. Price of the staples that Pepsi sells that we all consume some of it, I'm sure, right? Try not to consume too much of Pepsi products, but no doubt that we all consume Pepsi products. Those products are up 17%. So with these huge rise in the cost of living, you're going to either eat your spending, you're going to borrow on credit cards, you're going to use pay now, you know, buy now, pay later. You're going to use all these services to keep living the lifestyle that you're used to until it doesn't work, until buy now, pay later is not available to you, until your credit cards are maxed out, and until you have no savings. At that point, you stop spending and you retract. And that's where we're going to see fourth quarter, first quarter, right? So, But you're not going to get these reports coming out until February of next year, if not May of next year, right? So it's not going to be until the spring that we start to see what the consumer, what inflation really did to the consumer. And the fact is what it did to the consumer is it destroyed them, okay? And so this is just, this is exactly what's happening. Now, at the same time, right, we're being pushed into more credit cards, right? Like just as an anecdote, and I don't know if this is happening, I didn't even research it, but I know that two of my credit cards increased my credit limit last month. I got a notice from both my Chase credit card as well as I think my, I have a Capital One credit card. Both of those credit lines that I have, you know, that I don't use, but you know, I have the credit lines. They um, they increase my limit, right? So I have to believe that it's across America that these companies are saying, "Hey, who pays their credit cards?" Let's give them an increase in limit, right? Like we want more credit capacity out on the street. So, so at the same time that they're running their credit cards up and eventually they're going to max them out, the credit card companies are now increasing limits. So we still have a little runway left. You know, that's why I'm saying February, May, until we see the real problem. But when that problem comes in, okay, it is going to be an, a massive calamity of a problem. So going to the end of the year, we've got this lowering of CPI, we got this lull, all right? CPI is is uh, is coming down, some of the goods are coming down, energy's coming down. It's likely going to trend, you know, on the core side. The core is at 4.8 or something core PCE. It'll get down to 4, it'll get down to 3.75. You know, the the Fed is so happy about this. They think that their job is done, and then all of a sudden we're going to get slammed next year with rapidly rising inflation rapidly deteriorating corporate earnings. And when that happens, you're going to see equity prices plummet. And that's what we're, we're, we're looking for. 
when that happens and we hit that baseline of 3200 3300 on the S&P, you know, 30% off the highs, at that point we've pretty much hit the low because what we do know is that the Fed is going to come in and they're going to save the day. All right? So we're going to talk a little bit about that at the end. Uh, a few more quick items. Um, just want to talk about President Biden a little bit. I don't usually talk about him. Um, I probably I, I think I don't like to talk to him, talk about him because I don't even like to justify speaking about this man because he's such a bad president. He's such a bad human. Um, he's such a he's just you know a loser, right? For lack of better words, he's done nothing but live in the swamp of Washington D.C. and and he's everything that is bad about U.S. politics is embodied in this man, Joe Biden. Um, but I w- I'm going to talk about two things that are almost comical, right? So one of the things that him and as well as his lack of better word here, idiot uh, energy secretary uh, are have been out on the circuit, on the talk circuit, calling out all the oil companies that they're war profiteering, right? That because energy prices are up, uh, you should not be making any profits right now. You need to be reinvesting all your profits, not paying out your shareholders. Uh, you need to cut your, your, your margins down and, and help the consumer out, right? So that was Joe Biden's way of calling out these oil companies that, by the way, lost a ton of money when energy prices were down. But I didn't see the federal government coming in and giving them a bunch of cash for that or the shareholders a bunch of cash for, for sticking it out. Now that they're making profits, you want to punish them with some type of windfall profits tax or whatever. But he was, again, he was calling them out as this this evil evil organizations who are profiting on a war, right, that has been uh, horrible from, from a human life standpoint. So while that was going on just a month or two ago, okay, at the same time, they've been in negotiations on this Russian oil price cap. And so what they're trying to do is they're going to put a cap on the price that anybody's willing to pay from Russian oil. So the fact is, uh, Russian oil is very, it's on the market right now. I mean, every, it's still out there, right? There's just as much Russian oil as there was pre-war. So they're going to put this price cap in place. Well, they're going to put sanctions in too. I think all this goes into effect like the next week or two. So that's why I think we'll see an energy price increase here pretty soon. But um, so uh, anyway, when the price cap goes in, they've been arguing about what that price cap is, right? The price that they're going to cap any purchases at. And the idea is if you lower the price enough, Putin won't sell it. And if he won't sell it, then he's going to get hurt that way. So Europe says, okay, you know, 40 to $60 and, you know, they want to do $40, right? They want to say, hey, we're not going to buy Russian oil unless it's for $40 a barrel, uh, which <clears throat> Putin probably would never do. And it would be very effective. Well, the Biden administration was kind of on board with that. And then after more thinking about it, they decided that they wanted it to be more like $80. All right. So now you have the Biden administration saying, hey, we'll pay up to $80, right? And Europe's looking at them like, wait a minute, that's not, you're not getting the job done here. You're just trying to do this to keep energy costs down at home for things. And and it's, you know, it's Biden's fault that we have these high energy costs because he's, you know, been so brutal to the energy industry. He's discouraged all the investment. So he caused this issue. And now he's trying to save face and solve the problem by keeping the price cap very high. And so you have this same person that's called out all the energy companies for war profiteering, who wants to profit his own political career and the, and the political career of the Democrats and the green energy people, 
by setting a price cap at a level that still puts a ton of money in Putin's pocket, allows him to keep pushing the war forward. So the the price cap is a way that the Biden administration's war profiteering. It's just, you know, hypocrisy in a nutshell is Joe Biden, right? The same person who wants to not let energy companies make money, wants to further his political agenda by pushing lots of excess money over to Putin by an, a really high price cap and allow him to keep killing people in Europe, right? So, so I mean, it's just amazing that people don't see this. You know, the other very interesting thing that just happened with Biden was this whole thing with the freight rail, rail workers union and the bill that he pushed through. And, you know, he pushed this bill through that had no paid sick leave in it. And, you know, all these union people got him into office, right? I mean, the unions are huge supporters of the Democrats. So the unions are like, you know, pissed that he's basically shoving this bill through and shoving this this contract through to them uh, on something that they didn't agree to. They were looking for the paid sick leave. And his comment was basically, you know, in, in so many words, he said, you know, I know it doesn't have paid sick leave, but the fight isn't over. We're going to come back for that, right? As if he's going to come back in the future and renegotiate this contract. But we just need to get this contract in place. Again, just trying to further the political agenda of him and his left-wing Democrats um, by pushing things through to avoid the rail strike because anything that hurts the economy is bad for him. So he's got to keep all these things, all these these balls moving forward. And he doesn't really care who he burns in the process. And he burned those rail rail workers. Uh, but again, if you're a rail worker, don't worry. Biden's going to come back later for that. Uh, he's going to come back and fight later, right? It's, it's almost comical. But in any event, you know, when you look at the overall uh, market and the economy, we have a fundamental shortage in energy and in labor. And, and both of those things are going to cause inflation. So we might have a, a slight recession or a um, receding inflation right now. But I can promise you it's going to come roaring back again. There's there's a glut of energy on the on the market from the Russian energy to the strategic petroleum reserves. When those things stop and the demand picks up on China, energy is going to spike. CPI is going to go through the roof. And the fact is, when you have this, inflation is going to go up. At the same time, the Americans are going to run out of money. They're going to drive corporate earnings into a recession. And when that happens, what what they hope is that that'll cause a, a decrease in inflation. But the fact is, it's going to cause an increase in inflation, right? People think that recessions stop inflation because they stop demand. Well, they also stop supply. So if you're not producing goods because corporations are not investing in things the way they were in the boom times, then you're not going to have the goods on the street, right? You're going to have corporations retracting into the most profitable business models. They're going to be shutting down expansion. They're going to be shutting down uh, innovation. And when that happens, those are inflationary factors, right? So we are going to end up in this stagflationary environment. That is where we're headed. High inflation, deep recession, and it's inevitable. And and again, all we can do from a market perspective is you know trade the tactical rallies, make some money where we can, have a very quick trigger finger to get out when the markets are crashing, uh, let this thing wash out, let us get down to this baseline and at the end of the day, you know, we do know that the Fed is going to come to the rescue because if they don't, it would get so bad, right? If they really wanted to fight this stagflation by by just jacking interest rates up the way Paul Volcker did, the economy would absolutely implode. 
you know, you'd see unemployment at 20 percent. Um, you'd see, you know, the government having to come in and, and restructure Social Security and Medicare and all this. Uh, and they're just not going to do that. And so, you know, again, that is the the conundrum that we're in is that this stagflation is not going anywhere. And so when you look at a financial planning perspective, it's not just about the stock market. You know, we can control risk in the stock market. We've done it all year. We're going to continue to do it. But having additional income streams is critical. You know, we only deal with pre-retirees and retirees. We help people gauge up for retirement and then get through retirement. And one of the most important things is having consistent income, whether that's from a pension or from Social Security, even though that's somewhat at risk, okay, from being insolvent. Um, but having pensions, Social Security, uh, income annuities, dividend cash flow, right? You have to generate that cash flow. Once you generate the cash flow, you can worry about investing. Um, but, you know, again, that's just a little anecdote on uh, financial planning in general. But, you know, again, hopefully this clarifies some of the, the tactical trade, why we're doing it uh, for our clients. And I think it's just a very interesting overview of of the markets today. Uh, we're in an interesting spot, uh, but I think the most interesting times are still ahead of us. With that said, I hope everybody has a wonderful weekend. Uh, we are going to try and get back to once a week podcasts, and so we'll hope to do it next week. Thank you again, freedomandwealthusa.com. If you're not a client, check us out, put in your name, you'll talk to me directly. All right, have a great weekend. The information on this podcast is educational in nature and is not intended to be a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan, or other purpose. Information presented is believed to be factual and up-to-date, but we do not guarantee its accuracy, and it should not be regarded as a complete analysis of subjects discussed. The information provided should not be considered tax or legal advice. Discussions and answers to questions do not involve the rendering of personalized investment advice and is limited to the dissemination of general information and may not be suitable for members of the listening audience. It should not be construed by any consumer as solicitation to affect or attempt to affect transactions in securities or the rendering of personalized investment advice for compensation. Communications such as this are not impartial and are provided in connection with advertising and marketing of advisory services offered through Nicolaysen Wealth Partners Incorporated. Prior to making any investment or financial decisions, an investor should always seek advice from a financial, insurance, legal, or tax professional that takes into account all the particular facts and circumstances of an investor's own situation.